Zechariah chapter 3. We studied most of this last week, but I'm going to be redundant and teach you again in hopes that, um, that we'll come to a greater understanding of what is being prophesied, what is being said about our coming Messiah. Think about just for a moment as you're turning to Zechariah chapter 3, if you're in need of rescuing from wherever, wherever you're, whatever kind of a despair you're in, if you're in need of rescuing, who is it that you're going to call upon? Uh, maybe your house is on fire and you need uh, rescuing. Are you going to call a lifeguard? Or are you going to call uh, a great engineer? Or are you going to call a pastor? Who, who more than likely will you call if your house is on fire? You're going to call the fire department. Am I, am I right on that? I think we can all be in agreement about something this morning. Let's be unified in this at least. If your house is on fire, be in agreement with me. You're going to call the fire department. Unless you have a greater understanding that 200 years from now it won't matter, let it burn, and then maybe you just want to just let it burn. But whatever, that's you, okay? Uh, if you're drowning and you're going to call upon somebody to help you, you hope to call upon somebody that is an excellent swimmer or maybe has some sort of flotation advice that can hold you up and them. And so you start doing the math in your head. How much do I weigh? How much do I think? They weigh. Will that flotation device um, actually help us? And then some of you are just like, maybe we should just just, uh, just forget it. I'm just going to sink anyways. I don't know what the case may be. But more than likely, if you're in need of rescuing, you're going to call the person that's most qualified for the process of rescuing. Am I right? You're going to call a doctor or a fireman or a lifeguard or whatever the case may be. You're going to call upon this particular person to save you, to rescue you from the despair that you're in. Now, in that moment, when the fire department shows up, do you like look over their resume? Do you check their trucks? Do you see, can they hook up to the water hydrant? Uh, do they know what they're doing? Do they have uh, the, the, the apparatus on? Do they have their helmets on? Do they have their shield down? Do you stop them and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. The wind is coming from this direction. The smoke's going that way. Do you begin telling them how to rescue you? The lifeguard comes out to save you and you're drowning. Your lungs are filling up with water and you, the, you stop the lifeguard. Wait a minute. Have you been trained? Uh, do you have the proper uh, license? Can you do CPR mouth-to-mouth? Did you take a breath mint? Do I even want you to do mouth-to-mouth on me? You start asking them, stop, slow down, don't rescue me just yet until I know that you're qualified. I mean, we do this, right? In a sense, with Jesus. We hear the scripture, we see the stories, we know about Christ. We even have read prophecies together and we see that he fulfills all those things. But when he wants to come in and swoop into your life and save you from everything and be Lord of your life, and then he begins commanding you to do certain things, you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Let me see who you are, who's given you authority. Do you actually have a good resume? Have you been trained in all of this? Aren't you just some lowly, insignificant boy from Nazareth, uh, the stepson of a carpenter, that we're not even sure really what, how all the birth stuff took place or why it was in a cave or a manger or a stable or whatever it was in? You, you begin just questioning all these things about him. And when we question it mostly is when uh, times are tough. When, when times are rough, like we want to trust in Jesus, uh, we, we hear what he's, he has said, we hear songs like we just sang that he's our living hope, but here I am just trying to live. Is he actually my living hope? Does he, does he truly have all authority? Do I really need to base my entire life about him? I mean, what if we required you to answer at the baptism moment? Is, do you have a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord? Yes. Okay. Are you willing to do whatever he says to do? Say whatever he says to say and go wherever he says to go and most of us would be hesitant 
Yes, to some degree. I will go as long as he doesn't send me here. And I've been saying, trying to use reverse psychology on the Lord for a long time. Lord, I'll go anywhere except Red River, New Mexico. Don't send me to Red River, hoping that there's some reverse psychology that will go, go there. So you know, if, um, if, if I, if we were to move to Red River, New Mexico, something happened that it was, it probably wasn't the Lord, okay? We, we tend to put these parameters upon. We want to check out his resume. Do you really know all these things? Are you really the ancient of day? Are you really, were you really the alpha and the omega? Are you really the alpha and the omega? Do you actually know all the things that you say that you know? And then on top of that, do you truly have all authority? I mean, why would Christ be given authority in heaven and on earth, but not authority over you or I? You know, we question this. I know I'm in need of rescuing, and I see that you have the life preserver, but let me question you first in regards to who who you are. And so as we've talked about over the past uh, five weeks or so, uh, Zechariah, along with the other minor prophets, have these great themes within their within their prophecies. Uh, these themes about who God is, about what he's doing, uh, his sovereignty, his judgment, his grace, all these things that we're seeing, his, 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 the fact that he's the one that's getting us righteous, all these things. And we come to this fifth theme that you see throughout all the minor prophets, throughout all the prophets of the Old Testament. You see this theme that there is a coming Messiah. One who's coming to save, the chosen one from God, who's going to who's going to come into this broken world and rescue those who are in need of rescuing. Which, by the way, Paul clarifies to us, everyone is in need of rescuing. And so Christ comes to make a way for everyone in the world uh, to be saved, to be rescued from the despair that they're in. So over the next few weeks until Easter, we're going to talk about this coming Messiah. And we're looking at it through the lens of the cross already. We're looking backwards. We already know that Christ has come one. We're anticipating that he comes again. And so with that, when we're reading this, when we're reading Zechariah, they're anticipating that Jesus, the Messiah, would show up at some point. So when we read these prophecies, when we talk about Joshua, when we talk about the branch this morning, when we talk about the servant, when we talk about the stone, uh, they're not sure who that's going to be. We can be confident that that is Jesus, that Jesus has fulfilled those those prophecies, that we're trusting that what has been, pro- what has been prophesied about Jesus and the Jesus that we sing about and that we worship and that we say is Lord of our life, we can trust that he's the one fulfilling or has fulfilled all of these, of these prophecies. And I know some of you are thinking, yes, this is, this is Sunday morning talk. Like this is great Sunday morning talk that we always talk about Jesus. Like constantly you come and you sit in the orange pews and the orange carpet and you sing the songs and all these things. And like we're constantly talking about Jesus. But when does this talk about Jesus uh, infiltrate my life and actually help me for the things things that I need? I thought yesterday uh, uh, Brian and I were at a, a little conference, a pastor's conference, and uh, one of the things that was said was, you know that cliche that we use that often we use that God's not going to give you more than you can handle? Like most people aren't saying that when they have 36 billion dollars you know what i'm saying like in, in our american terms like we have so much money like the lord's not going to give me more than i can handle surely he's going to give me more than just 36 billion dollars right it's mostly people who are in despair who have nothing but in that moment you're saying well, all these trials and these and these struggles and the suffering that i'm going through surely god won't give me more than i can handle what a great cliche and maybe it's helpful for you to do, but it's not the word of god so we shouldn't be holding on to that statement we need to have the whole truth of god 
And that's why we study all of it. And that's why we study that our living hope is in Jesus. And when we're focusing upon Jesus, the suffering seems small and, in, and insignificant. The trials that we go through seem lowly and insignificant. They seem like they have nothing to do with real life because our, our eyes are focused upon the one and only true living hope, and that is Jesus. And so whatever the moment is this week, if you're facing death, if you're facing financial burden, if you're facing terrible decisions that you're going to have to make or weighty decisions that you're going to have to make, or if you're just facing the fact that you want to share about the hope that you have in Christ with somebody else, and you're fearful of that, we put our trust and our hope not in our training or our experiences or the knowledge that we have or the knowledge that anyone else has, but we put all our hope and our trust and our obedience in Christ and Christ alone. Should we just end there? Should we read Scripture together? Let's read Scripture together. Zechariah chapter 3. We read this last week. I'm going to read it again, stop a few times, and then give you an invitation. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Just point out a few things about Joshua here. Joshua is, uh, is uh, the name Joshua can also, uh, you can also pronounce it Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, the same name that Jesus has. Jesus has this name Yeshua, that he is uh, being a testimony or giving evidence to that God is the one that brings salvation. We talked about this all last week, that God is the one that's getting us right. You cannot bring salvation upon yourself. You cannot do anything, climb any ladder or any stairs, or do the right things in order to gain salvation. All of that work is completed or was completed in Jesus, and so we must just trust in Him, put our faith in Him, and live obediently for Him, trusting that He is Lord of our life, that everything that's said about Him is true, Everything that was prophesied about the Messiah is fulfilled in him, and with that we have we have salvation. So Yahweh is salvation. Joshua here, the picture is that Joshua is this leader, this great leader of the people of God. Okay? The people of God have these leaders, have these people in place, these men in place called high priests. And these high priests perform these religious things that need to happen, particularly for salvation, particularly for uh, sacrifice, so that sins can be can be removed. So it's interesting because Joshua. Joshua's name means that Yahweh is salvation, and he is the high priest. So he's doing all these ceremonial rituals that bring about salvation to the folks that they think is happening, that when they sin, they go to Joshua the high priest, and Joshua the high priest removes their sins from them because he is pure and he is holy. He's done all the sacramental uh, washings that need to happen, and so because of that, he can provide a way for them to be forgiven also. So we have this picture of Joshua, the high priest, priest who's standing before, what does it say? He's standing before the angel of the Lord. And this would be like an obvious moment that people would recognize and say, of course, Joshua would be in this place. He's the high priest. He's holy. He's pure. He's done everything that he needs to do in order to stand in the holy place. It says Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan. So we have this moment where why is Satan standing in this heavenly council? Why is Joshua here? We, we expect Joshua to be here, but why is Satan here also, standing at his right hand to accuse him? And so if you're a people trusting in Joshua, your whole life you've been trained to trust in the high priest, 
You've been uh, trained your whole life to trust in that Joshua, whoever the high priest is, is going to uh, help you uh, remedy the situation of sin, uh, of stains, and remove those things, provide the right sheep or the right goat or the right pigeon or whatever needs to happen, that the blood may cover your sin and that, uh, that God's wrath may pass over you. And so you're putting your trust in Joshua. And here Joshua is standing in this heavenly council, and you're saying, of course you would stand in this heavenly council. And then Satan is there to accuse Joshua of something. And you're thinking, he's the high priest. What could he be accused of? He's been placed in a, a prominent position. Look at his genealogy. Look at his life. He's done everything right. He's not some lowly, insignificant guy. Instead, he's the prominent high priest. He's almost king over us. We trust that he's righteous, that he's holy, that he's pure. God would look at him and say, yeah, there's nothing to accuse him of. He must be doing, so, he must have done something, or he must have done everything right. So Satan's going to look like a fool in this moment. Verse 2 says this, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from fire? Okay, so God speaks to Satan, Satan, and he's rebuking him. Like you came to accuse, but you're not going to be able to accuse. And I would think in this moment that people would begin to cheer and rejoice and celebrate. Yeah, we knew it. Some of them would say, I told you so, Satan, he's an accuser, he's a liar, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The high priest, he's pure, he's righteous, he's holy, he's been to Sunday school, he's been to training, he's been to VBS, he's been to Sunday night church more than anybody else. He is pure and holy. And then verse 3 says this, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Wait a minute. He's clothed with fil filthy garments? Does this make sense? This is Joshua, the high priest. Never should he have filthy garments. He shouldn't be this way. He needs to be righteous. He needs to be holy. It's Joshua. His name means Yahweh's salvation. He's done everything right. He is. He's got to be righteous. Why would he stand in the heavenly council with filthy garments. This is a crazy scenario, a crazy moment. It's a, mom a moment where Joshua is going to uh, be a symbol or a sign of something to come, or particularly someone to come. A person who shouldn't be clothed in filthy garments is filled or clothed with filthy garments. Why is this happening? And the people's attention begins to, uh, to rise and they say, what's, what's going on here? Because if he's clothed with filthy garments, then Satan who wants to accuse him is probably right. He's dirty. He shouldn't be in the presence of the, of the, of the pure almighty God. And so Satan is going to win this battle. Satan is going to stand up and say, look, he's clothed in filthy garments. And can I tell you today, he's still doing the same thing, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking to accuse you and add guilt to your life, saying, have you gone to VBS enough? Have you gone to Sunday school enough? Have you read your Bible enough? Have you told enough people? Have you done these things? Have you given to the church enough? Uh, have, you, have you done all these things that you need to do? Are you, are, you, uh, are you like Joshua and that you could be the high priest of the Baptist world, yet still stand before God? Filthy. And Satan wants to accuse you of that. And verse 4 says this, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. It's so different. It's so different from what's been, been happening. Joshua, the high priest, he's the one that's got to do all the sacrament, uh, he's got to do all the, you know, the sacrificial washings and all these things that have to happen. And now all of a sudden someone else is doing that for him. 
the filthy garments that he was standing in front of uh, this heavenly council with the accuser there also standing in front of them and now God is going to step in and remove the garments from him. These garments that shouldn't be on him anyways because of the righteous life that he's been living. Remove the filthy garments from him and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Uh, what do you think? What's Satan's response in this moment? Hey, this isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Come on, righteous judge. Like, let me accuse you of doing things wrongly. I think at that moment, maybe God just points his finger at the accuser and says, no, you know where you belong, and so you will go there. Punishment will be for you. There's no uh, redemption for you, Satan, because you have rebelled in the way that, in the ways that you have rebelled. Instead, with my grace and my mercy, instead of pouring out wrath upon this high priest, instead of pouring out wrath and judgment, I'm going to remove these filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let me just say, this is again preaching the gospel to yourself daily. This is this coming week today. When you don't feel right at all, you don't base your life upon your feelings or your thoughts. Instead, you move to what the truth says about about what Christ has done for us. That he has stood in our place, clothed with the filthy garments and the iniquities of the world, including yours. And then God has removed those from him because of the sacrifice that he made. And the blood that he shed cleanses us of all filth and, and, and makes us righteous so that we can stand in this heavenly council no longer accused of sin. Instead being removed from sin. Verse 5 says this, uh, And I will clothe you with pure vestments or celebration clothes. At the end of verse 4, sorry. So, so Joshua, the high priest, in this weird council setting, heavenly council setting, in one moment should be accused of the filth. The filth is removed. And then, and then, and then in the next moment, the grave clothes have been taken off. The death clothes have been removed. The things that show uh, that he's been, uh, that he was a slave or that he was uh, conquered and that there was no hope in him at all. He's then clothed with righteousness, pure vestments, celebration clothes. He goes from a funeral to a barbecue celebration. And verse 5 says this, And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they, may put a, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. All this happens in the, in the presence of, of God in this heavenly council, clothing him, taking away all filth, filth and, and unrighteousness, and clothing him with righteousness, putting this, uh, this turban on his head, this sign of authority, of kingship, the sign of, of newness, of a new life of righteousness. And verse 6 says this, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. What a, what a crazy little moment here. I mean, Joshua is giving a picture here, a symbol of the things that are, that are going to come. Joshua, Yeshua, the, Yahweh is salvation. We see the same thing playing out with Jesus, that there's this Messiah that's coming that's going to be clothed in the filth of the world, that will, will, will at one point, when God removes those iniquities from him, be able to stand in the presence of this heavenly council. What does it say? And the angel saw me assured, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you, will, you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. What is mine will become yours. Everything I will give you authority in heaven and on earth and below the earth. Everything will be under under you. So here now, verse 8 says this, Here now, O Joshua, the high priest. 
You and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. They are men who are a sign. They are pointing to what's to come. That there's a greater Joshua coming. There's a greater high priest that's coming. Joshua clothed with, with the symbols of sin, uh, with the symbols of iniquity, and then removed and clothed in God's righteousness. He does so as, a, as the people's representative, as a symbol of what is to come, the symbol of Jesus that's, 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 going, to, that's going to come. Can I just tell you this? At the end of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, uh, verses 29 through 30, we hear something really significant that happens in the life of Joshua. And this is why what, what is being said here about Joshua is only a sign of the Messiah to come. Because in Joshua 24, verse 29, it says this, After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance. What happened with Joshua? At the end of his life, he died and he was buried. And there is no dot, 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 and then he resurrected from the grave. There is no dot, 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 and then he was the ruler over all, heaven and on earth. There's no dot, 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 and he is, he is the savior of the world. Joshua died and was buried. And so it must be pointing to something greater, to someone greater than Joshua. This text must be pointing to the one true Messiah, the one who will stand in your place and my place clothed in my filthy garments and then being removed and then clothing us with his righteousness, the ruler of all. Jesus was buried. Yes, he died and was buried. But three days later, he rose from the grave. There was not an end. There was not like a period at the end of that. He died for your sins and was buried, period. Instead, it continues on. The life of Christ is continuing on even today. Even today, our high priest Jesus is still being seen as living, that he is not dead. He resurrected from the grave. But Jesus is this lowly, insignificant guy from Nazareth. Can anything good come from here? I mean, can he do what he says he has been sent to do? Can this carpenter's stepson from Nazareth actually accomplish uh, what is being prophesied here in, in this text. Verse 8 says this, Hear now, now, O uh, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. So God is speaking through Zechariah, and all attention was upon Joshua, the high priest, and then he switches and says, this is not about you, Bob. This is not about you, Joshua. This is not about you. This is about my servant, the branch. And later he'll say, the stone. This, this life that you're living is not about you. Even the church today. Like we are supposed to be representatives of something that is, something that we have hope in that is to come. The completed work of Christ, that he's going to do what he said he's going to do, and that he's going to continue doing all the things that he said he's going to continue to do. We put our hope in Jesus that we are this sign of what is to come, this hope, these symbols of what Christ has done in us, what he's doing in us, and what he's going to do through us, that he might get all the glory and the honor for this. So Joshua and the people around are thinking, this story, this prophecy must be about me. How, how often do we read the Bible and say the same thing? These words must be about me. This life must be about me. The reason why I've received all these things, it must be about me. No, we are a sign of things to come. We should be representatives, the, the love of Christ compelling us, representatives, ambassadors of who God is, of what he's done and what he's going to do. And so at the end of chapter 3 here, we meet up with these three titles, these three titles that, uh, that describe Jesus. 
These three prophetic titles that belong only to Jesus. The first one is that God says, I will bring my servant. A lowly and insignificant position. Have you had that position? Have you put toilet paper on the toilet paper roll? Have you mopped rooms where where everyone made it dirty and you were the only one left to do those things? Have you hauled buckets of manure and no one else will do that? Whatever symbolic symbolism you want to say, teachers, I know you're not just hauling manure out of your classroom, but you know what I'm talking about. Have you done this over and over again? You think it's a lowly, insignificant position. And it is if it's for your glory. When you're doing those things for your own glory, those things are lowly and insignificant. If Christ was only coming as the servant of God to obey himself and to serve for his glory, it would be a lowly, insignificant position. But the fact that God has prophesied that he's going to send his servant, this lowly, insignificant position, his servant, his slave to come and be obedient to him so that the will of the Father might be done, so that the world might be saved, when we think outside of our small worldview into the grand scheme of things, 10,000 years from now, then we see what Christ has done is neither lowly or insignificant, but instead huge, mighty. I will bring my servant. It's interesting in the Old Testament, when there's prophecy about Jesus or prophecy about the Messiah, servant is the most used title. It's the most emphasized, most used title in the Old Testament when we're talking about the coming Messiah. My servant will come. I will bring my servant. I will send my servant. Emphasizing that this position, this Messiah, this Savior is coming to do the work and the will of the Lord instead of his own work and will. Can you imagine church today? If the church was about this, if we put into practice Mark 10.45, that even the Son of Man came not to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What if the church was known as a group of people who said, this life is not about me. This life is about the one that I am serving. And Christ, who is God, comes to earth and lives his life as a servant belonging to God. Uh, not equating himself with God, but instead uh, humbling himself to the point of even death, right? And, and living as a servant of God. And so we, f- we should be following in the same, the same footsteps. That we belong to God, that we serve him and him alone. This plays out every day. I know it does in your life. You begin to serve your belly, your wallet, you begin to serve your house, your vehicles. You begin serving your spouse and not in a God-glorifying way. You begin serving your job and not in a God-glorifying way. You serve all these things of the world. And I'm saying you and I should be saying me too. We serve things of this world more than we serve the one that should be served. We spend more time thinking about how will this affect a long-term me instead of, instead of thinking about how does my obedience impact 10,000 years from now, the worship, the continued worship of Jesus. Behold, I will, I will bring my servant. And he goes on to say, my servant is the branch. So here we have this lowly, insignificant uh, position of a slave or a servant. The servant representing the Messiah? Surely not, God. You're sending a servant instead of a mighty warrior. Can you send somebody else? And then he goes on to say, a branch, a small shoot, something that's unimpressive, Something that's small and, and uh, just a, a, a very insignificant little piece here. Is this really what's going to save us? Is this really what's going to, to reconcile us to, to God? He's going to bring a branch. And in this particular case, it's saying the branch. 
And this, where it's, this is where it gets really significant that we would understand who the, the branch is. Four times the branch is mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, the first is uh, Jeremiah in the, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah. He talks about the branch being this royal king. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6 say this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell uh, securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteous. So this royal king, this small shoot or this small branch, this small sprout, this small growth that seems unimpressive but but has the potential with the power of the Holy Spirit to grow to some something magnificent. This small branch Jesus coming from lowly, insignificant background to being understood through prophecy as being the branch of David. Zechariah three eight that we just said here, it's going to, this branch is going to represent God's servant. These four things that we see throughout of the Old Testament as he's constantly talking about the Zechariah 6.12 talks about that this branch is going to be a man. We see also in Isaiah 4.2 it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. That This branch belongs to God. And then we see in the New Testament that the branch is fulfilled in Jesus in all four Gospels. In Matthew, Jesus is revealed as the king. In Mark, Jesus is revealed as God's servant. In Luke, Jesus is revealed as the son of man. And in John, Jesus is revealed as the son of God. This lowly shoot, growth, this little sprout, this little branch of David grows into something magnificent. King, God's servant, the Son of Man, the Son of God, to reconcile the world to himself through the life that he lives. Jesus, as the branch, is God unveiling the fullness of who he is to the entire world. So it seems small, a branch, a little growth, a little sprout, but there's so much to it. And that's why we say you can't just preach the gospel to yourself at seven and accept it and do nothing else with it. You can't just look at Jesus and say, yeah, I know a little bit about him and that's enough. We must come to a, a greater understanding, growing daily, maturing, maturing daily in our life through Jesus, understanding more and more about him, maturing, saying there's not just a little bit of Jesus that I need to know. I want to know every much that I can. Jesus is the servant. He's the branch. These two lowly, insignificant things. And then verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 3 says this, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So the inscription on this stone is that the Iniquity of the world would be removed in a single day. Now, this is what I think about a stone, lowly and insignificant. I guarantee this morning none of you thought about the stones that you drove over as you drove here. You know, think about any stone that you walked. As you walked on the sidewalk, you weren't thinking about the stones that you're walking on. You're not thinking until now that I, that I say it. You're not thinking about the stones that are holding this building up. You're just trusting in these lowly, insignificant stones. In fact, most stones are lowly and insignificant. You think nothing of them until they trip you up, until they hurt your toe, until the building falls down because a stone was removed. 
We don't think about these lowly, insignificant things as the stone, the branch, servants. We think they don't have anything to do with us until we see how God uses them for His glory. Can I read to you 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-10? through 10? So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him would not be put to shame. Our Jesus is a living stone. Almost, it would seem, as if inscripted or inscribed upon this living stone are the words that that I will remove the iniquity of this land on a single day. Inscribed on the stone, Jesus, we could say, are these words forgiven? Are these words uh, redeemed? Are these words reconciled? Bringing the world back to, to himself through his, his life. A servant, a branch, a stone, all these things, lowly and, and, and insignificant until you get a spanking with a branch. Until the servant walks out of your life and no longer serves you. Until you trip up on a stone. I mean, all these lowly, insignificant things remain lowly and insignificant until you begin studying them, until you begin researching them. In the case of the Messiah, until you begin saying, reveal yourself to me. Let me study your word. Let me be a good beret. And let me see what you have to say about yourself so that I can worship you above all things. A servant, lowly, insignificant, until the servant is gone. Think about the disciples. We loved it when Jesus was here, but now he's leaving us. Where are you going to go? Are you going to leave us all by ourselves? No, 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 I'm not going to leave you by yourself until you need something. I love at our house, we do this all the time. You know, when you're lazy as a parent, what do you do? You employ your minions, and so you say, hey, uh, kids, go get me the remote control. Hey, kids, pour me coffee. You didn't pour it hot enough, microwave it up. You know, whatever the case may be, you have these little minions, these little servants of yours. And when we have in in a picture of our head that Jesus, this lowly, insignificant servant, is came just to serve us, we treat him that way. And as long as we treat him that way and don't have a right view of who Jesus is, when we're not getting the things that we want from him, we begin to question him. Well, I thought you said you were a servant. Doesn't that mean you came to serve me? Well, I thought you called me Lord. Doesn't that mean you will obey me? A servant, lowly, insignificant, until you understand who he is. Until you understand that your need of something is him. I don't need the servant to serve me with things of this world. I need the servant, Jesus. A servant is lowly and insignificant until the servant provides life through his sacrifice. I will serve you through death, and then I will resurrect from the grave, and I'll serve you through life. Christian, I'm afraid we take advantage too often of our Messiah, the servant Jesus. We take him for granted, forgetting that we once called him Lord. And our responses no longer meet my needs, but instead, thy will be done. Then the branch, a branch is lowly and insignificant until your mama breaks it off the tree and spanks your bottom with it. 
A branch is lowly and insignificant until that branch is connected to the root that will produce the fruit of salvation. When it's just a branch apart from the root, it is nothing. But when the branch is the branch connected to the, to the genealogy of David, representing the royal king, the son of God, the son of man, when we see that he's not just lowly and, and, and an insignificant branch, we recognize that he is Jesus, the Messiah, we will say, you are the branch, and I will sit under you and, to, and find rest in you and you alone. Verse 10 says this, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Understanding that all of life should be under Jesus. Thank you for that amen. One lowly amen. Sitting under Jesus. Jesus says this in John 15, verses 4 through 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This lowly, insignificant branch that comes through the line of David represents something magnificent, something greater than ourselves. When we want just to serve ourselves and pick our own fruit and eat our own fruit and live our life for ourselves, we do nothing when we recognize who the branch is, who the servant is in Jesus, and say, all of my life for him and him alone. Thy will be done. Then fruit will be bared, and a fruit that is of eternal value. We must stay connected. Yes, it may seem insignificant at times, the small little things that we're doing, but we must abide in Christ that he might be able to produce fruit through us. And then lastly, this lowly, insignificant stone representing our coming Messiah. A stone, again, is lowly and insignificant until it is removed and the whole building crumbles. Can you imagine sitting in this room right now and someone was to remove the cornerstone? Some of you are about to doubt this. Remove the cornerstone and the whole building falls? Oh, sure, try. Remove the cornerstone. Let's see if it falls. A stone is lowly and insignificant when we don't understand how mighty and magnificent it truly is. A stone is lowly and insignificant until you stumble over it. Think about what Christ said, or what, what Peter tells us there, what we just read in 1 Peter chapter 2. We talk about this stone that the builders uh, rejected, that the, the people of God uh, rejected. Verse 7 says this, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because... They disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, listen this, but you, you are chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this small, lowly, insignificant stone that's representing Jesus is much greater than we could ever expect. And we're here today, and again, many of you didn't think about the rocks that you drove on to get here or walk upon to get here, the rock that's helping hold this building up. It's just a stone. It's just a rock until we're tripped up by it, until we stumble over it. And then we will gain a much greater awareness of the stone. 
Many of us do need to be tripped up by the gospel every day. We need a fresh understanding of what is happening, what Christ has done. We need a fresh understanding of this lowly, insignificant Jesus that we talk about so often and how he has huge, magnificent ramifications in our life when we begin to obey him and his word and his word alone. I read this at a funeral this past week. It comes from a guy named Micah Fries. I'll read it to you. I think it's important this morning. In a cemetery not far from New York City, a grave is said to have been marked with an unusual headstone, a tombstone. The headstone does not indicate a date of birth or the date of death or even the name of the person whose grave it is. Instead, there is just one word on the stone. And the one word is forgiven. For the person whose body lies beneath that stone the most important thing that could be said at the end of his or her life was that one word, forgiven. So far better than that stone. Listen to this. Far better than that. Far better than having a cold word chiseled in stone at the end of our lives. God desires to engrave forgiven in our hearts, in our minds each day. Though our sin is great, Jesus has cleansed us from our sin. Through Jesus, God has made the way for people to experience the joy and freedom of being forgiven and feeling, even feeling and living forgiven. This stone, lowly and insignificant. This branch seems so lowly and insignificant. This servant seems so lowly and insignificant. When we have a greater understanding of who he is, even in those small three titles, then we understand he is neither lowly nor insignificant. But instead, he matters for every breath that I take, every step that I take, every action that I make should be in obedience to him and him alone. I'll end with this. And then we're going to sing uh, the song that we ended with just, just a few minutes ago. Church, I think that too often we are satisfied with a stone that was rolled away from the tomb. And we are satisfied in that. Praise Jesus, the stone was rolled away. And yet we remain in the cemetery. That huge dead stone that was placed over the entry of the tomb of Jesus is still dead today. But the living stone walked out out of the tomb, out of the burial ground, no longer in the cemetery. He's out of death and into life. And that is who we serve today. Let's pray. Jesus, let us, as we sing this morning, worship you and you alone. Praise you for not being dead. Too often Christians walk around with no joy, thinking that we are lowly and insignificant. But you, God, the creator of the world, the highest being that we can try and wrap our minds around, came to this earth to serve, to fulfill prophecy, to raise from the dead, not just so that we could clap about it, but so that we might have life also, no longer wrapped up in sin, entangled in the things of this world, but instead freed from all those things. So God, please continue to work through us, in us, transforming us into your likeness. God, for those in this room this morning who have heard about Jesus all of their life, God, bring a freshness to their life. 
Now let them no longer remain in the cemetery. Let them no longer be celebrating some dead stone, but instead let us, as the people belonging to you, a chosen people, a royal people, a people with your name on us, God, let us live lives forgiven and free and alive in Jesus. And for the folks here this morning, God, that have not, that have not confessed Christ as Lord, to help them to respond this morning. No longer waiting. God, seeing their need for Jesus, and apart from Jesus, they're walking in death. God, continue to speak to us. Continue to teach us about Christ. Stir in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.